Mackey, and uh, this is another episode of A Woonwinkle in Time. Thanks for joining us today. I'm sitting here with a glass of very, very hot Theraflu. I'm still waiting for it to cool off, and uh, Ted's back with us. Welcome back, Ted, and uh, congratulations again on your new marriage. <laughs> Great. So what I've got going for you today are... Um, two stories, that's right, two, we are back to format, um, two stories from a, a really great but relatively unknown Soviet author um, named Varlam Shalimov, and both of these writings come from a collection of short stories that are called, um, collectively, the Kalima Tales, and Kalima is a, a famous, notoriously brutal gulag, where Shalimov spent uh, at least a decade, I believe it was. And um, these stories were very, very important when they finally reached the public. And he was known as the first great recorder of the experience of gulag life and the horrors and atrocities that were committed against the Russian people there. Um, in fact, actually, something that most people don't know is that Solzhenitsyn actually approached Shalimov and asked if he would like to um, help him write the Gulag Archipelago. And Shalimov actually refused. And so Solzhenitsyn wrote it on his own. Um, pretty shocking, actually, that uh, such a great writer would have asked for help. But that kind of, that describes to us just how important Shalimov was in understanding the Gulag. If you have never read Shalimov, or even if you've never even heard of him, which I think most people haven't, I am somewhat envious of you because his, tr his, uh, his stories are, are real treats. They... Uh, say so much about life in the camps and life working in the uh, gold and the ore mines, which was very common for the prisoners in Siberia at that time. Um, they say so much without being very long. And that is something of a, a welcome change um, for people who enjoy reading about the gulags. Um, and I can tell you, if you've ever read any of the Gulag Archipelago, it is not something that you can just pick up and uh, read a few pages or, or, uh, or a few parts and then put it back down. Kalima Tales is definitely one of those books, and um, I think everybody will get a lot out of it, no matter if they read the whole thing straight through, or pick and choose whatever stories they find the most interesting, um, as I've chosen today. Um, okay, um, let's jump right into it. Um, this first story I have for you is called Condensed Milk, and I personally love this story. I think it's probably my favorite story in this collection, and uh, I hope you enjoy it as well. Envy, like all our feelings, had been dulled and weakened by hunger. We lacked the strength to experience emotions, to seek easier work, to walk, to ask, to beg. We envied only our acquaintances, the ones who had been lucky enough to get office work, a job in the hospital or the stables. Wherever there was none of the long physical labor glorified as heroic and noble and signs above all the camp gates. In a word, we envied only Shostakov. External circumstances alone were capable of jolting us out of apathy and distracting us from slowly approaching death. It had been an external and not an internal force. Inside, there was only an empty, scorched sensation, and we were indifferent to everything, making plans no further than the next day. Even now, I wanted to go back to the barracks and lie down on the bunk, but instead, I was standing at the doors of the commissary. Purchases could be made only by petty criminals and thieves who were repeated offenders. The latter were classified as friends of the people. 
There was no reason for us politicals to be there, but we couldn't take our eyes off the loaves of bread that were brown as chocolate. Our heads swam from the sweet, heavy aroma of fresh bread that tickled the nostrils. I stood there, not knowing when I would find the strength within myself to return to the barracks. I was staring at the bread when Shostakov called to me. I'd known Shostakov on the mainland, in Butir prison, where we were cellmates. We weren't friends, just acquaintances. Shostakov didn't work in the mine. He was an engineer geologist, and he was taken into the prospecting group, in the office. The lucky man barely said hello to his Moscow acquaintances. We weren't offended. Everyone looked out for himself here. Have a smoke, Shostakov said, and he handed me a scrap of newspaper, sprinkled some tobacco on it, and lit a match, a real match. I lit up. I have to talk to you, Shostakov said. To me? Yeah. We walked behind the barracks and sat down on the lip of the old mine. My legs immediately became heavy, but Shostakov kept swinging his new regulation-issue boots that smelled slightly of fish grease. His pant legs were rolled up, revealing checkered socks. I stared at Shostakov's feet with sincere admiration, even delight. At least one person from our cell didn't wear foot rags. Under us, the ground shook from dull explosions. They were preparing the ground for the night shift. Small stones fell at our feet, rustling like unobtrusive gray birds. Let's go farther, said Shostakov. Don't worry, it won't kill us. Your socks will stay in one piece. It's not exactly what I'm talking about, said Shostakov, and swept his index finger along the line of the horizon. What do you think of all that? It's sure to kill us, I said. It was the last thing I wanted to think of. Nothing doing. I'm not willing to die. So? I have a map, Shostakov said sluggishly. I'll make up a group of workers. Take you and we'll go to Black Springs. That's 15 kilometers from here. I'll have a pass and we'll make a run for the sea. Agreed? He recited all this as indifferently as he did quickly. When we get to the sea, what then? Swim? Who cares? The important thing is to begin. I can't live like this any longer. Better to die on your feet than live on your knees. Shostakov pronounced the sentence with an air of pomp. Who said that? It was a familiar sentence. I tried but lacked the strength to remember who had said those words and when. All that smacked of books was forgotten. No one believed in books. I rolled up my pants and showed the breaks in the skin from scurvy. You'll be all right in the woods, said Shostakov. Berries, vitamins, I'll lead the way. I know the road. I have a map. I closed my eyes and thought. There were roads to the sea from here, all of them 500 kilometers long, no less. Even Shostakov wouldn't make it, not to mention me. Could he be taking me along as food? No, of course not. But why was he lying? He knew all that as well as I did, and suddenly I was afraid of Shostakov, the only one of us who was working in the field in which he had been trained. Who had set him up here, and at what price? Everything here had to be paid for, either with another man's blood or another man's life. Okay, I said, opening my eyes, but I need to eat and get my strength up. Great, great. You definitely have to do that. I'll bring you some uh, canned food. I can get that. There are a lot of canned foods in the world. Meat, fish, fruit, vegetables. But best of all was condensed milk. Of course, there was no sense drinking it with hot water. 
You had to eat it with a spoon, smear it on bread, or swallow it slowly. From the can, eat it little by little, watching how the light liquid mass grew yellow and how a small sugar star would stick to the can. Oh. Tomorrow, I said, choking from joy. Condensed milk. Fine, fine, condensed milk. And Shostakov left. I returned to the barracks and closed my eyes. It was hard to think. For the first time, I could visualize the material nature of our psyche and all its palpability. It was painful to think, but necessary. He'd make a group for an escape and turn everyone in. That was crystal clear. He'd pay for his office job with our blood. With my blood. They'd either kill us there at Black Springs, or bring us in alive and give us an extra sentence. An extra... 10 or 15 years. He couldn't help but know that there was no escape. But the milk, the condensed milk. I fell asleep, and in my ragged, hungry dreams saw Shostakov's can of condensed milk, a monstrous can with a sky-blue label. Enormous and blue as the night sky, the can had a thousand holes punched in it, and the milk seeped out and flowed in a stream as broad as the Milky Way. My hands easily reached the sky, and greedily I drank the thick, sweet, starry milk. I don't remember what I did that day, nor how I worked. I waited. I waited for the sun to set in the west, and for the horses to neigh, for they guessed the end of the workday better than people. The workhorn roared hoarsely, and I set out for the barracks where I found Shostakov. He pulled two cans of condensed milk from his pockets. I punched a hole in each of the cans with the edge of an axe, and a thick white stream flowed over the lid onto my hand. "'You should punch a second hole for the air,' said Shostakov. "'That's all right,' I said, licking my dirty, sweet fingers. "'Let's have a spoon,' said Shostakov, turning to the laborers surrounding us. Licked clean, ten glistening spoons were stretched out over the table. Everyone stood and watched as I ate. No one was indelicate about it, nor was there the slightest expectation that they might be permitted to participate.' None of them could even hope that I would share this milk with them. Such things were unheard of, and their interest was absolutely selfless. I also knew that it was impossible not to stare at food disappearing in another man's mouth. I sat down so as to be comfortable and drank the milk without any bread, washing it down from time to time with cold water. I finished both cans. The audience disappeared. The show was over. Shostakov watched me with sympathy. You know, I said, carefully licking the spoon, I changed my mind. Go without me. Shostakov comprehended immediately and left without saying a word to me. It was, of course, a weak, worthless act of vengeance, just like all my feelings. But what else could I do? Warn the others? I didn't know them. But they needed a warning. Shostakov managed to convince five people. They made their escape the next week. Two were killed at Black Springs, and the other three stood trial a month later. Shostakov's case was considered separately because of the production considerations. He was taken away, and I met him again at a different mine six months later. He wasn't given any extra sentence for the escape attempt. The authorities played the game honestly with him, even though they could have acted quite differently. He was working in the prospecting group, was shaved and well-fed, and his checkered socks were in one piece. He didn't say hello to me, but there was really no reason for him to act that way. I mean, after all, two cans of condensed milk aren't such a big deal.
Wow, what an interesting story. What a difficult life that those people had to endure, the constant backstabbing, the constant having to look over um, your own shoulder to make sure that someone who may be pretending to be your friend isn't actually trying to sell you out so that they can better their own position. Not an enviable position to be in. Okay, well, um, why don't we take a, a short music break and we'll hear a word from our sponsors very quickly and then we'll get into the next story. say thank you to all of our listeners and also to Theraflu who is uh, sponsoring this episode. Okay, so this next story I have for you is called Esperanto. And for those of you who aren't aware, Esperanto is a universal language that was developed and became quite popular at the turn of the century. Okay, and now I give you Esperanto. A wandering actor who happened to be a prisoner reminded me of this story. It was just after a performance put on by the camp activities group in which he was the main actor, 
producer and theater carpenter. He mentioned the name Skorosev, and I immediately recalled the road to Siberia in 1939. The five of us had endured the typhoid quarantine, the work assignments, the roll calls, and the biting frost, but we were nevertheless caught up by the camp nets and cast out into the endlessness of the taiga. We five neither knew nor wanted to know anything about each other until our group reached the spot where we were to work and live. Each of us received the news of our future trip in his own way. One went mad, thinking he was to be shot at the very moment he was granted life. Another tried to talk his way out of the situation, and almost succeeded. I was the third, an indifferent skeleton from the gold mine. The fourth was a jack-of-all-trades over seventy years old. The fifth was Skorosev. Skorosev, he would pronounce carefully, standing on tiptoes so as to look each of us in the eye. I couldn't care less, but the jack-of-all-trades kept up the conversation. What kind of work did you do before? I was an agronomist in the People's Agricultural Commissariat. The chief of coal exploration, whose responsibility it was to receive the group, leafed through Skorosev's folder. I can still work, citizen chief. Okay, I'll make you a watchman. Skorosev performed his duty zealously. Not for a minute would he leave his post, afraid that any mistake could be exploited by a fellow prisoner and reported to the camp authorities. It was better not to take any chances. Once there was a heavy snowstorm that lasted all night. Skoroseyev's replacement was a Galician by the name of Narinsky. This chestnut-haired convict had been a prisoner of war during World War I, and he had been convicted of plotting to re-establish Austro-Hungary. He was a little proud to be convicted of such a crime among the throngs of Trotskyites and saboteurs. Narinsky told us with a chuckle that when he took over the watch, he discovered that Skoroseyev hadn't budged from his spot even during the snowstorm. Skoroseyev's dedication was noticed, and his position became more secure. Once a horse died in camp. It was no great loss since horses worked poorly in the far north. But the meat, the meat, the hide had to be removed from the frozen carcass. There were neither butchers nor volunteers, but Skorosev offered to do the job. The camp chief was surprised and pleased. There would be both hide and meat. The hide could be registered in the official report, and the meat would go into the general pot. The entire barracks, all of the village, spoke of Skorosev. Meat, meat. The carcass was dragged into the bathhouse, where Skorosev skinned and gutted it when it had thawed. The hide stiffened again in the frost and was carried off to the storehouse. We never even tasted the meat. At the last minute, the camp chief realized that there was no veterinarian who could sign to give permission. An official report was made up, and the carcass was hacked into pieces and burned on a bonfire in the presence of the camp chief and the work gang leader. We were prospecting for coal, but without any luck... Little by little, in groups of five and ten, people were taken away from our camp. Making their way along the forest path up the mountain, these people left my life forever. Each of us understood that ours was a prospecting group, and not a mine group. Each strove to remain here, to break, as long as possible. One would work with unusual diligence, another would pray longer than usual. Anxiety had entered our lives. A new group of guards had arrived from behind the mountain. For us? But they took no one away. No one. That night there was a search in the barracks. We had no books, no knives, no felt pens, no newspapers, no writing paper. What was there to search for? They were confiscating civilian clothing. Many of the prisoners had acquired such clothing from civilians who worked in the prospecting group, which itself was unguarded. Were they trying to prevent escapes? Fulfilling an order, maybe? Or was there some change of authority higher on up? 
Everything was confiscated without any reports or records. Confiscated, and that was that. Indignation was boundless. I recalled how, two years earlier, civilian clothing had been confiscated in Magadan. Hundreds of thousands of fur coats from hundreds of convict gangs that had been shipped to the far north of Misery. These were warm coats, sweaters, and suits that could have served as precious bribes to save a life in some decisive hour. But all roads back were cut off in the Magadan bathhouse. Mountains of civilian clothing rose in the yard. They were higher than the water tower, higher than the bathhouse roof. Mountains of clothing, mountains of tragedies, mountains of human fate suddenly snapped. All who left the bathhouse were doomed to death. How these people had fought to protect their goods from the camp criminal element, from the blatant piracy that raged in the barracks, the cattle cars, the transit points. All that had been saved, hidden from the thieves, was confiscated in the bathhouse by the state. How simple it all was. Only two years had passed, and now everything was being repeated. Civilian clothing that had reached the mines was confiscated later. I remember how I had been awakened in the middle of the night. There were searches in the barracks every day, and every day people were led away. I sat on my cot and smoked. I had no civilian clothing. It had all been left in the Magadan bathhouse. But some of my comrades had civilian clothing. These were precious things, symbols of a different life. They may have been rotting, torn, unmended, because no one had either time or the strength to sew. Nevertheless, they were treasured. Each of us stood at his place and waited. The investigator sat next to the lamp and wrote up reports on confiscated items. I sat on the bunk and smoked, neither upset nor indignant, but overwhelmed by one single desire, that the search be ended as quickly as possible so we could go back to sleep. But our orderly, whose name was Praga, began to hack away at his suit with an axe, tore the sheets into shreds, chopped up his shoes. Just rags. All they'll get is rags. Take that axe away from him, shouted the inspector. Praga threw the axe on the floor. The search stopped. The items Praga had torn and cut were his own things. They had not yet managed to write up a report on them. When he realized they were not about to seize him, Praga shredded his civilian clothing before our very eyes, and before the eyes of the investigator. That had been a year ago, and now it was happening again. Everyone was excited, upset, and had difficulty falling asleep again. There's no difference between the criminals who rob us and the government that robs us, I said. And everyone agreed with me. As watchman, Skoroseyev started his shift about two hours before we did. Two abreast, all the taiga path would allow, we reached the office, angry and offended. Naive longing for justice sits deep in man, perhaps even too deep to root out. After all, why be offended? Why be angry or indignant? This damn search was just one instance of thousands. But at the bottom of each of our souls, something stronger than freedom, stronger than life's experience, was boiling. The faces of the convicts were dark with rage. On the office porch stood the camp chief, Viktor Nikolaevich Plutalov. The chief's face was also dark with rage. Our tiny column stopped in front of the office, and Plutalov called me into the office. So, you say the state is worse than the camp criminals? Plutalov stared at me from under lowered brows, biting his lips and sitting uncomfortably on a stool behind his desk. I said nothing. Skoroseyev! The impatient Mr. Plutalov didn't conceal his stoolie, didn't wait for two hours. Or something else the matter. I don't give a damn how you run off at the mouth, but what am I supposed to do if it's reported to me? Or, in your language, if someone squeals? Yes, sir. It's called squealing. All right. Get back to work. You'd all eat each other alive if you had the chance. 
politicians. A universal language. Everyone is going to understand one another. But I'm in charge here. I have to do something. If they squeal to me, Plutalov spat angrily. A week passed, and I was shipped off with the latest group to leave the blessed prospecting group for the big mine. On the very first day, I took the place of a horse in a wooden yoke, heaving with my chest against a wooden log. Skoroseyev remained in the prospecting group. They were putting on an amateur performance in camp, and the wandering actor, who was also master of ceremonies, came running out to encourage the nervous performers off stage, one of the hospital wards. The performance is going great! It's a great performance! He whispered into the ear of each participant. It's a great performance, he announced loudly and strode back and forth, wiping the sweat from his forehead with a dirty rag. Everything was very professional. The wandering actor had himself once been a star. Someone on stage was reading aloud a story of Zoshenko, called Lemonade. The master of ceremonies leaned over to me. Give me a smoke. Sure. You wouldn't believe it, the master of ceremonies said suddenly. But if I didn't know better, I'd swear it was that bitch Skorosev. Skorosev. Now I knew whose intonations the voice on the stage had reminded me of. I'm an Esperantist. Do you understand? It's a universal language. No basic English for me. That's what I got my sentence for. I'm a member of the Moscow Society of Esperantists. Uh, you mean Article 5, Paragraph 6. The spy, huh? Obviously. Ten years? Fifteen. But where does Skorosev fit in? Skorosev was the vice chairman of the society. He's the one who sold us all out, testified against everyone. Kind of short. Yeah. Where's he now? I don't know, but I'd strangle him with my bare hands. I ask you as a friend. I had known the actor for about two hours. No more than that. I ask you as a friend. Hit him in the face if you meet him. Right in the mug and half your sins will be forgiven you. Half. For sure? For sure. But the reader of Zoshenko's Lemonade was already walking off stage. It wasn't Skorosev, but tall, lanky Baron Mendel. He looked like a prince from the Romanov dynasty and counted Pushkin among his ancestors. I was somewhat disappointed as I looked Pushkin's descendant over, and the master of ceremonies was already leading his next victim onto the stage. He declaimed Gorky's, Wind gathers the clouds over the sea's gray plain. Just listen. The baron leaned over to me. What kind of poetry is that? That kind of howling wind and thunder isn't poetry. Just imagine, in that same year, that same day and hour, Bloch wrote his oath in fire and gloom, and Bialy wrote gold and azure. I envied the baron's happiness. He could lose himself. He could flee into verse. Many years had passed, and nothing was forgotten. I arrived in Magadan after being released from camp and was attempting to free myself in a true fashion, to cross that terrible sea over which I had been brought to Kalima. And although I realized how difficult it would be to exist during my eternal wanderings, I didn't want to remain on the cursed Kalima soil by choice. I had little money, and a truck headed in my direction had brought me to Magadan for a ruble per kilometer. The town was shrouded by white fog. I had acquaintances here. They had to be here. But one seeks out acquaintances here in the day and not at night. At night, no one will open even for a familiar voice. I needed a roof over my head, a berth, sleep. I stood in the bus station and gazed at the floor which was completely covered with bodies, objects, sacks, and crates. Force came to worst. It was as cold here as on the street, perhaps 45 degrees below zero. 
The iron stove had no fire in it, and the station door was constantly opening. Do I know you? In the savage frost, I was glad to see even Skorosev. We shook hands through our mittens. You can stay at my place. My house is nearby. I was released quite a while back. Got a mortgage and built a house. Even got married. Skorosev burst out laughing. We'll have some tea. It was so cold I agreed. For a long time we made our way over the hills and ruts of nighttime Magadan with its shroud of cold, milky darkness. Yes, I built a house, Skorosev was saying as I smoked, resting up. Got me a government loan. Decided to build a nest. A northern nest. <laughs> I drank some tea, lay down, and fell asleep. But I slept badly in spite of my distant journey. Somehow, yesterday had been lived badly. When I woke up, washed, and had a smoke, I understood how I had lived yesterday badly. Well, I'll be going. I have a friend not far from here. Leave your suitcase. If you find your friends, you can come back for it. No, it's too far away. I really wish you'd stay. After all, we are old friends. Yeah, I said. Goodbye. I buttoned my coat, picked up the suitcase, and reached for the door handle. Goodbye. What about the money? said Skorosev. What money? For the night. It's not free. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. I put down the suitcase, unbuttoned my coat, groped for the money in my pockets, and paid. The fog was milky yellow in the day. I really enjoy this story for a number of reasons. One is that it's called Esperanto, and some of the characters you meet were imprisoned for learning and speaking Esperanto. However, I think the Esperanto, the so-called universal language in this story, is not actually Esperanto. It's obviously money and, and favors and everything that the prisoners up north had to live by. So I think it perfectly encapsulates a, a lot of the structure of life that these poor prisoners are going through on a day-by-day -day basis. Even after they get out, they're still locked in this mindset. They still stay up in the north, in Siberia, in the cold, which to me is really quite unbelievable. I think uh, one of the other reasons I chose this story and why I really enjoyed it was, of course, because of the reference to Zoshenko. And, and if you are a listener to this podcast, you'll remember that we had Zoshenko uh, a couple weeks ago. And it's funny that he was so popular, he was even being read by prisoners. His, uh, his stories were being, quote-unquote, performed in Siberian prisoner performances. I also loved the kind of brief snapshot we got at the Baron, uh, Baron Mendel and how the narrator was jealous to find that he could lose himself in verse. He could sit there thinking about Pushkin and Bloch and God knows who else, and achieve a sort of mental freedom that many of the other prisoners weren't able to. Okay, well, it's about that time, and uh, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, the readings from Varlam Shalimov. I know I did, and I would encourage everyone to go out and pick up a copy of his uh, Kalima tales because they're really quite eye-opening, and especially if you're interested in Solzhenitsyn or the history of the Gulags, um, Shalomov is not one to be missed. Okay, well, thanks so much for listening. Um, I'm ready to hit the sack, and I don't know about you. How about you, Ted? Yeah, Ted's looking pretty sleepy over there. So this has been Delwar Malarkey with A Wound Winkle in Time. We'll see you next week. Same place, same time. And remember, 
Sweet dreams, everybody.